brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know The less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? All right, higher side chatters, I think it's safe to say our general feelings and relationship with the medical establishment are contentious at best. And despite the standard response of trusting the experts and authorities to have our best interest at heart, we wonder how can you not look at this system with a skeptical eye when you consider the amounts of money involved, the revolving door of regulatory capture between Big Pharma and those agencies created to police the industry, and the simple fact that just a few generations ago, doctors were willing to recommend their favorite brand of cigarettes for the right price. And while we know marketing is often deceptive and dishonest when it comes to the life and death seriousness of medical matters, we sometimes let our guards down. Because who would be heartless enough to take the money when the stakes are this high? Sadly, the answer is many, many people. And I'm sure some of you listening now have heard the Herald Angels sing the chorus line urging young ladies to be one less by getting a tried and true HPV vaccine to protect yourself from the ever-growing risk of cervical cancer. Well, folks, it seems like Merck and GlaxoSmithKline, the companies that manufacture HPV vaccines, such as Gardasil, have lied to you and have caused damage, death, and heartbreak all around the world. And only because of brave people willing to push back against the blind faith prerogative like today's two guests, Kim Mac Rosenberg and Eileen Iorio, do we even have the facts and data we need to confidently say no. Because Kim and Eileen are two of the three authors, along with Mary Holland of the NYU School of Law, behind the great new book called The HPV Vaccine on Trial, Seeking Justice for a Generation Betrayed. At over 350 pages, it tells the full story of the HPV vaccine with over another 100 pages of meticulously crafted sources and endnotes. 
that combined make a pretty ironclad case that even the most trusting people can't deny. I, for one, am definitely excited to get into it. Two passionate advocates for truth, Mary and Kim, welcome to the higher side. Thank you so much for having us, Greg. We appreciate the time to share information about the book. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Of course, it is my pleasure. I am so glad you ladies are here. On behalf of everyone, thanks for not only talking to me today, but for putting this book together. I think a lot of us realize that a big portion of the population is in denial about this sort of thing, and it doesn't help to hand them a book called The Vaccine Conspiracy with crying babies and a skull and crossbones on the cover. You know, those books exist, but your book, The HPV Vaccine on Trial, is incredibly professional and well put together, and you should both be really proud. And to kick this off, you say in the intro, we bring legal and financial backgrounds to the task. While we are not doctors or scientists, we believe that our perspective is critical to the debate. And I hoped we could start by elaborating on that. Obviously, expertise is important. Can you talk to us about your credentials and how you three ladies came together to tackle this, just for when my open-minded audience tries to share this with their less open-minded friends and family? Sure. This is Eileen. I come to it from a perspective, I have three children, two girls and a boy. Initially, it was on the basis of opposing really mandating this vaccine in New York, where we live. And whatever your stance on vaccines, I believe that it shouldn't be mandated. This is a vaccine against a sexually transmitted infection. And I felt that mandating this for school entry was egregious at best. And I came to it from that perspective. Years ago, my son was injured by vaccines and hospitalized, and thankfully he pulled through. So I was already looking into this issue and blogging about it and you know, this is a new vaccine and there's a lot of information and a lot of controversies. So naturally, I leant towards investigating this and writing a blog on it for the Thinking Moms Revolution and then got involved in meeting legislators in New York to oppose this particular vaccine mandate, which comes up every year, which led me to meeting Kim and Mary. But essentially, this is about risk awareness, informed consent. And as the title of the book suggests, HPV vaccine on trial, this vaccine is very much on trial throughout the world, both in the courts of law, which Kim can talk about, and in the court of public opinion. So I felt it was important to get to the bottom of this, figure out, was it safe? Did the trials show that it was safe? And like I said, because it's new, in my opinion, the jury's still out. So this is Kim. I came to it both from a legal perspective and the perspective of a parent. I have an 18-year-old son who is vaccine injured as well. But as a lawyer, I have been practicing for many years, and my practice has focused on insurance-related issues and products liability issues. And as a products liability litigator, I've done a great deal of work directly with experts, such as epidemiologists, MDs, and PhDs in various specialties in addressing the connections between injuries and exposures. So I have a lot of background in that and have learned to critically read, for example, peer-reviewed studies and meta-analyses and things like that. As Eileen said, you know, we were very concerned about the idea of mandating the HPV vaccine in New York State and elsewhere where, you know, mandates have been tried and in some cases in a few states 
actually it is mandated. It's a very controversial vaccine. And as we dug into it, what we found was the evidence that we present in our book is there in sources from the U.S. government, the European Medicines Agency, you know, CDC, FDA, ACIP, all the alphabet soup of governmental agencies, WHO. So a lot of what we rely on and we want readers or curious people to know this is information directly from those sources. We go beyond those sources, but we bring you the information that is out there from them that people don't know about. And it's really important that people learn this because just reading a package insert or reading a vaccine information statement or even talking to your doctor who hasn't seen all this information in all likelihood is not going to give you a complete picture and allow you to make a truly informed decision that's right for you or your family. Right. And just to add quickly, Greg, the book has been endorsed by Dr. Luc Montagnier, who is a world-renowned virologist and Nobel Prize winner for his discovery of the AIDS virus. And many doctors have reviewed the book for its content. We are not doctors, and the book doesn't contain medical advice. It's more of an investigative, journalistic look at this vaccine and the scandal throughout the world. It's heavily cited. And to date, we have not had any professional or alphabet soup agency raise any issues with our book, and no corrections have been asked to be made. This is very well researched. It has taken a long time to put together. Yes, it is so impressive, and that's definitely worth pointing out. It's also got tons of endorsements and praise right there in the first few pages, as well as the doctors you talked to and the studies you pulled out along the way. And the book is broken down into four parts. Part one looks at the testing and the clinical trials. Part two looks at what happened when the vaccine hit the market. Part three is a deeper dive into the latest research on aluminum-containing adjuvants and other ingredients of concern. And part four looks at the international implications. So it's really methodical. But let's get deeper into the clinical trials because what you lay out is pretty shocking. And I think this is where we can get a lot of people who assume something so important would have super strict and honest testing because that is not the case. What did you find when you looked into these trials that was most shocking? Eileen, maybe you can tell us what you saw. I think what most people find most shocking, not us because we've researched many vaccines, but what most people find shocking is that the placebo in the clinical trials was not saline or inert. It was, in fact, the exact same adjuvant as is found in the vaccine. And an adjuvant is an immune stimulating, an immune priming ingredient that enables the vaccine to work. So without the adjuvant, in this case, a novel proprietary adjuvant belonging to Merck that nobody has ever studied independently. So initially, that's what people find shocking. How can you have a clinical trial without a saline or inert control? Where is your safety data coming from? There isn't any. And in fact, throughout the entire clinical trial process over many years and many trials, there was no inert control. Even the one small clinical trial involving the youngest children, the target market of 9 to 15 year olds, the FDA claimed that that was a saline trial, whereas in fact it was not. It didn't have the aluminum adjuvant, but it did have other non-inert substances like borax, L-histidine and polysorbate 80, all ingredients which have never been really tested independently to be injected into children. But the most shocking thing we found was that aside from the lack of informed consent issues that we do raise, 
that small trial I just mentioned with the youngest children, the clinical trial they were involved with that they participated in, in the vaccine arm, they were given half the amount of this aluminum adjuvant that was eventually in the formulation of the vaccine that went to market. So in other words, the children that were used in the clinical trial to convince the FDA that it was safe for young children and effective only got half the dose of this immune-stimulating adjuvant of what's on the market that children are getting today. So not only was it not tested against a saline placebo, the vaccine was never tested at all. And this has an implication for safety because we know, and you can see in part three of the book where we talk about the adjuvant, that this has an implication for safety, that the aluminum adjuvant does cause side effects. It is implicated in many autoimmune conditions throughout the world, allergies, and many other neurological disorders. So this is far from a clinical trial that we consider to be robust for safety purposes. And just to follow up on what Eileen said, we discovered this anomaly in the dosing of aluminum in the youngest children test group. And it's in the FDA's clinical review documents. And the table in the FDA's documents is actually sort of a cut and paste and insert from a Merck document. So this is information directly from Merck. It hasn't been transposed any of number of times or lost in translation. It's Merck's own data, and they have not come forward and said that that data is incorrect. Mm. And the FDA are currently looking at it, Greg. So we have raised these issues. I did mention the lack of informed consent in the opening chapter. You might remember that we tell the story of two young girls from Denmark who were involved in the clinical trials. One was in the vaccine arm and the other was in the placebo arm or the faucebo arm, as we call it, because it was a very similar substance. And that mirrored the clinical trials, really. And they both became ill, which is what the clinical trials did actually discover, that there was the same rate of harm in each group, which didn't raise a flag to them as a safety signal. In fact, it reinforced their opinion that the vaccine was safe, incredibly so. But we talked to the girls who were enrolled in the clinical trials and they were told and they received brochures to this effect that the vaccine was safe. It had already been tested. And this was 2002. The vaccine was approved in 2006. They were also told that the placebo would be saline. And they were under the impression that the clinical trial investigators also believed that the placebo was saline. So this was terribly egregious and some people consider it fraud on these girls. This hasn't been tested, of course, but it's a terrible, terrible indication of the lack attitude that Merck had towards these very generous clinical trial participants who risked their health under false pretenses to give their contribution to science. They believed that they were helping to save women from cervical cancer, and they themselves got sick, and it was never recorded or reported it was dismissed because, and even the girls say that the clinical trial investigators believed that there was no side effects. They were told everybody assumed this was safe. So where are the checks and balances? How do we know that Merck did a good job if these girls who were actually in Denmark, a very regulated country as regards clinical trials, what about other countries? It just doesn't bode well. And it would take many years to figure out all that information. We only had a certain amount of time. Yes, those were some of the very issues at the forefront of my mind that I found pretty shocking in your book with the findings that there was no true saline placebo probably being the most severe, along with only testing half of the volume found in the retail vaccine, 
And it's just so sad because you bring these girls in, you tell them they're getting a saline placebo, and then you inject them with these adjuvants, and some of them come away damaged just from that. Right. But what this practice does, which is so sinister, is it masks the hazards that would come from these adjuvants because there's no true control group. As your book puts it, Merck and the FDA concluded that because the vaccine and the control had similar safety profiles, the vaccine must be safe. That's like saying because cigarettes and cigars have similar risk profiles that they must both be safe. And that's a great analogy, but it is clear to see what they're doing here. First, they flat out lied. Then they obviously manipulated the data dishonestly. There has to be a deeper answer here than ignorance, right? I mean, how could such a thing happen with the protocols and protections that we assume are in place for stuff like this? Well, everyone asks us that, you know, how did they ever get it approved? So we asked the FDA, you know, why did you allow Merck to use an aluminum adjuvant? And their response was, well, we've been using aluminum salts for 70 years and Merck wanted to double blind the study. So that means that neither the participant nor the person administering the vaccine would know, right, which was which. So they wanted to make it look the same, which is absolutely bogus because, as you will have read, and we just spoke about it, that they did design a clinical trial that did not contain the adjuvant. It did contain the other ingredients. but So it isn't true that they needed to do that. And many trials are done without the vaccine looking the same. I mean, the vials. So there are other ways to do it. It's not good enough. And like you said, they used it as evidence of safety, which is preposterous. And when they were asked by an independent scientist in the UK, Dr. Christopher Exley, who's been studying aluminum for 30 odd years, and he's the world's expert in its toxicity and its effects on the humans and animals, he asked Merck to receive a vial so he could independently test it in his lab. And they said no. So where is the independent study that this is safe to inject into prepubescent children? We don't know the effect of injecting this amount. And the new version of the vaccine, Gardasil 9, has double the amount that was studied in the clinical trials, the original clinical trials. And guess what? Guess what was the the control in Gardasil 9's clinical trials? Well, it was the first version of the vaccine. So not only did you have no placebo in the original trials, then you come to testing this new product, and then they use the old version. So the whole thing begs so many questions, and they've never been answered. Right. And another element seems to be that in the Gardasil clinical trials, they used a new metric of new medical conditions as a way to claim that maybe serious health problems after vaccination were unrelated to injections. This is the type of moving the goalposts that I've seen before, but how does it come into play here? Well, I think it comes into play in a very key way. They tracked serious adverse events, other adverse events and reactions, really for the first 15 days following each injection. So it's a very short time frame in which to see adverse events, particularly things like autoimmune conditions, which we're seeing so many young people develop following HPV vaccination. And those can take months and years to develop and even longer to get a diagnosis. They're tricky diseases to diagnose. And what they did was create this metric called new medical conditions. And almost built into the metric is a presumption that those conditions are not related to the vaccine. And the clinical trial investigators were not required to collect as much information about these new medical conditions 
as they were about serious adverse events. And they have new medical conditions going out seven months, 12 months, depending on the trial group. And they're very serious conditions. There's gastrointestinal issues. There's autoimmune issues. There are reproductive and breast health issues. There are blood issues, cardiac issues. These are not serious infections. These are not just passing, you know, I have a headache or my arm hurts type of reaction. They're very serious conditions. And we know from the girls in Denmark, one of the girls in Denmark, as we talk about in the book, said that she was very sick following vaccination and she would go in and report these whole series of symptoms that she was experiencing that were very serious. And when she later obtained her records through a Freedom of Information Act request, obtained her clinical trial records with the help of a reporter from Slate, there was very little notation in those records of what she was reporting. It almost looked as if she was reporting something relatively mild, whereas she was debilitated, quite frankly. So this new metric as I said, sort of had this presumption of almost not being related to the vaccine. But importantly, almost 50% of young women in all the clinical trial groups combined reported new medical conditions following vaccination. And given that we know that there's perhaps scant reporting on some of these, the numbers could be even higher than what's shown in the clinical trial data. If you have someone like the young woman in our book, who said her conditions really weren't written down very well. So I, to me, it begs the question of whether that number is in fact even higher. But what we have is half of people reporting that they're ill. And it's also critical that the readers understand and your listeners understand that the people who participated in these clinical trials were a really select group of basically the healthiest of healthy young women. There were numerous exclusion criteria that the clinical trial investigators would apply in determining who could participate in the clinical trials. And it had to do with you know, how healthy you were, your gynecologic history, your number of sexual partners. You couldn't have had more than four sexual partners in your life, whether or not you had some sort of immunological or autoimmune condition. So all those people would be left out. And then there was a sort of catch-all that the clinical trial investigator could exclude anyone who he or she thought for whatever reason might skew the results of the trial somehow or not be an appropriate candidate for the trial. So you could lump a bunch of people into that category. So what you're getting is the healthiest of healthy 9 to 23-year-olds primarily, in one country it went up to 26, but 9 to 26-year-olds who are super, super healthy, and half of them are getting serious illnesses during these trials. That's astounding. Yes, that's an excellent point because it's all factors and data that goes out the window when you're injecting the masses because they don't have the strict criteria once the trials are over with. But another factor that's really important is the age, because I guess it's given to girls as young as nine, perhaps, but in the trials, the subjects of the study were significantly older. Why is that important? What data does that obscure? Well, the reason that the girls were older in the trials was because the endpoints, in other words, what they were testing involved gynecological examinations, right? So, and they had to be of an age group that were potentially sexually active so that they could study the virus. And if the control group, which we know is a placebo, but if HPV infections were being reduced. So that was the reason for the age group. 
and younger children, of course, cannot have gynecological exams. We believe that the target market was young children. We know from, let's say, the back way around this that they weren't likely to have sexual intercourse and the vaccine is supposedly more effective in young children. And we did find in the clinical trials that if the young women had HPV infections, they were more likely to develop disease later on. But perhaps, Kim, maybe you can answer that better than I can. Sure. So what they found, as Eileen said, there is one sort of logical reason that the vast majority of clinical trial participants were older and that they were able to conduct gynecologic exams on them, which they couldn't ethically do on you know nine and 10-year-olds. But they also found in one small sub-study group that women who were, at the time they were vaccinated, both had evidence from a blood test of prior exposure to one of the vaccine types of HPV and had some evidence of current exposure based on physical exam, that those women who were vaccinated were over 44% more likely to develop vaccine-type HPV-associated disease during the trial period than the same cohort who received that cohort who received the control, the aluminum adjuvant. And they found also that those women had more, quote-unquote, real-world risk factors for disease as well. They were smokers. Some of them were obese. So they had these risk factors that play into the development of disease. But if you're vaccinating someone and you know that they have those risk factors and you know that they may have an infection, that should raise red flags. But instead, in the real world, what we're seeing is that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says, don't pre-screen for HPV infection before administering the vaccine. So they're not looking for those women who may be at a greater risk because of an infection and other risk factors. And you're less likely to have those risk factors with young children. And young children, they're less likely to be smokers. They're less likely to be sexually active. That doesn't mean they may not have been exposed to HPV. And there certainly were young children in the clinical trials who had evidence of prior exposure through blood testing. And there are other ways to be infected with HPV than just through sexual activity. It's less common, but it's very real. I mean, there's mother to infant transmission during birth, and there's hand-to-body part transmission, even, you know, with young children changing diapers and things like that. So it is possible for someone who's not sexually active to have an HPV infection, though less common. But by switching the cohort to these younger children as the target market, you've sort of removed some of those risks, theoretically. Right. And there was also the risk of pregnancy miscarriage that we saw in the trials. But we can't say for sure if it was intended or it was switched to the younger market partway through. We have to assume that the target market was always these young children because they're more immunologically responsive to a vaccine. That's at least what we are told. And, you know, we're also told that the target market was really the developing world. And that doesn't appear to be, in reality, what's happening. The developing world is not receiving this vaccine where most cases of cervical cancer mortality are highest. I think it's over 90% of cervical cancer cases happen in the developing world. So, you know, this is kind of a very not well thought out vaccine in terms of distribution, rollout, marketing. And instead, the developed world, the US, UK, Europe, 
Australia, Canada are giving this vaccine to their youngest tweens and subsidizing for other countries to enter into this arrangement of giving the vaccine to their children. So it's a little bit upside down at the moment. And as Kim said, the recent approval by the FDA to include women 27 to 45, women and men actually 27 to 45, is also preposterous given that we saw in the clinical trials that there's an increased risk for disease enhancement in women who have had HPV in the past. And added to that, there's been no testing on men. And they use this method in clinical trials when you can't study the target market. So they couldn't study the children and they couldn't study men really because this was a cervical cancer study. So they use things called bridging studies. So they will do titer tests or blood tests after giving the participants the vaccine and then bridge it up, let's say, compare it to the more studied market. And then through their bridging, in other words, they will connect it somehow. They'll say, oh, well, let's compare the two groups. And then that's how they get approval for these young kids and men by bridging and saying, well, it's pretty similar. We're good to go without including the differences that young children have and men have in their immune response to vaccines. So this is white knuckling it. You know, this vaccine is one of the least tested, although it claims that it's the most tested. It may be the most tested in terms of time spent on clinical trials, but it's the least tested in terms of substance. Mm. Well, that's a great summary. And it's just so sad. We have all these issues with the trials. It's sloppiness at best, deception and criminality at worst. And to get into part two, maybe let's look deeper at what happened when the vaccine came to market. What can you tell us about how many girls have gotten it and some of the damage and issues that arose once it actually did come out? So millions of girls and boys now worldwide have gotten the vaccine. And I think one thing that we try to do, and it's important to put in perspective, is looking, and Eileen touched on this, the difference between high-resource countries and low-resource countries and the purported need for the vaccine. When you look at information, and we did, and we have it in the book, about who's really at risk of cervical cancer. In the United States, according to the National Cancer Institute's own data, 0.6% of U.S. women are at risk of developing cervical cancer in their lifetime. So just over half a percent of women. And of course, any case of cervical cancer is devastating and no one wants anyone to have cervical cancer. But the reality is that the risk is extraordinarily low for women in the United States. So Merck's marketing that you know, a mother or a parent would help their daughter to be one less case of cervical cancer is misleading because in most instances, those girls were never going to be a case of cervical cancer because the incidence is so low in the U.S. In other parts of the world, as Eileen pointed out, it's much more devastating. Both the incident rate and the death rates are much, much higher in places like East Africa. And there are many reasons that contribute to those increases, including smoking, exposure to toxic smokes, lack of screening, because in developed countries, generally speaking, if you are screened, any sort of abnormality is going to be caught and can be treated early. And that the majority of women who develop cervical cancer in a country like the United States have not been screened in five or more years. So screening is critical. And one of the things that we're seeing and is being reported 
in this now post-vaccine era that we're in is that when the youngest girls are vaccinated, you know, your tweens and your early teens, that those girls seem to not be engaging in recommended gynecological screenings going forward. So they're not getting their pap smears or their HPV DNA testing the way they should. And that is very troubling because we know that screening works and those girls should be screened. And the vaccine only protects against a limited number, to the extent it protects, it protects against a limited number of types of HPV. So this idea that the vaccine will prevent all cervical cancer or that the vaccine will last your whole lifetime. None of those things have been proven. There are other types of HPV not in the vaccine that are associated with cervical cancer as well and other cancers. And there's no evidence of lifetime protection. You know, it's a relatively new vaccine. We don't know how long its protections will last to the extent there are protections. So it's very worrisome that these girls might not be engaging in the kind of screening behavior. And really at 11 and 12 years old, which is really the central target market, those girls are basically at that point in their lives at zero risk of cervical cancer. And you know, Greg, we're seeing in the real world, while on one hand, they'll say, oh, look at Australia and, you know, HPV infections are down by half. But these are benign infections. In most cases, 95% of in cases, they will regress on their own with our body's immune system. So we're hearing about this quote unquote success of the vaccine. So why would you not? But they're ignoring the trail of destruction that we see all around the world. And there's also this more subtle effect that hasn't yet been proven, but we're seeing it. You know, Kim talked about screening. And in the UK, I think is a good example because they've had the vaccine in the schools for 10 years at 90% uptake. And what you see in the cervical cancer rates in the very young women there, and we didn't really talk too much about this in the book because it just needs to be looked at more. But cervical cancer in the young age group there, 20 to 28 years old, is on the rise. And we do know that screening is down by about 20% since the vaccine came in. So this complacency towards screening or over-reliance on the vaccine, now why would cancer be going up in very young women? Either most likely lack of screening or most of them have had the vaccine. So why didn't it work? Or what's happening? This all needs to be looked at. And yet it isn't because the WHO is focusing on small success stories like no warts in Australia. I mean, that has never been a public health threat to my knowledge. And you know, the other reason could be that Kim also mentioned, and it needs to be studied again, is this idea that other strains could be taking the place of those two very prevalent strains, 16 and 18, that were in the vaccine that those children got in the UK and elsewhere. But perhaps there are other strains now filling the void. Nature abhors a vacuum. And this is well known in virology that other strains could become more virulent and take the place. So why are these young women in the UK now more prone to cancer? Numbers, thankfully, are small, but the trend is on the way up since the vaccine came in. And it's shocking and scary. And women need to get screened. I think that's the message. Right. And there is some evidence even in studies from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, there is some evidence that type replacement is occurring. It's still equivocal at this point, and it's early days and hard to tell, but there certainly is some evidence that this type replacement is occurring and that once you take out, as Eileen said, these predominant strains, that other strains that may, we don't know, that may be more virulent, which is why they were sort of tamped down by the less virulent strains, 
are going to come in to fill that void. And it is very, very concerning that these young women, you know, the 20 to 28 year olds, that cervical cancer is on the rise in that cohort, because the incident rate for cervical cancer in that age group is thankfully very, very low, but you don't want to see any rise in cancer in those young women. So that needs to be watched, not just in the UK, but in other countries as well, where the Mm -hmm. programs have been in place for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's just also interesting. And Let's use maybe the U.S. as a microcosm because you said just over a half a percent are actually at risk of cervical cancer in the U.S. How many people, how many women got this vaccine versus like what kind of statistics do we have on how many end up adversely affected out in the real world? Mm. Well, historically, over the last 10 years or what is it now, 12 years since the vaccine was approved in 2006, Uptake has been very low in the U.S., averaging around 30%. It started off as a three-injection series, so kids would have to get three injections. And in 2016-17, it was reduced to two injections for the very young. Again, because they know that the youngest kids have more of an immune response to vaccines. So if you're over 15, it's three. So historically, it's been around 30%, and that is slightly increasing with the two-dose schedule because obviously it's less onerous on the patient. As regards injuries and statistics in terms of what percentage, we can only tell from what's reported to the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, VAERS, which is very passive. Not many people know about it, not even doctors, let alone the public. So if you have a vaccine reaction, your doctor should report it to VAERS. Now, it's something that you can do online or, you know, the doctor can call or report it to Merck, but this is not routine. My reason for saying that is that numbers are underestimated rather than over. So currently we have around 61,000 reported reactions since 2006 and 430 deaths, I think, Kim, we looked at it the other day. That's right, right around 430. Yeah. Now, not all of those reports, of course, are accurate. Like I said, it's a passive system. It's not robust in its reporting, but it is also underreported. So for however many of those 430 deaths may be, oh, I read something on the internet, you could amplify that up by times 10 to 100, because we know that around only 1% to 10% of real injuries are ever reported. So we could be looking at 4,000 deaths in the United States. Well, actually, theirs does include some from around the world. So around 4,000 deaths as opposed to, yes, cervical cancer deaths are terrifying and frightening, and it's a horrible disease. We don't, in any shape or form, want to belittle that. There are 4,000 deaths due to cervical cancer annually in the United States. It is ranked number 20 in the list of cancers in cancer mortality. And, you know, most of those deaths, I think, Kim, you mentioned this, are in women who have not had regular pap screens or not availed of the screening program here in the United States. So it's not to compare deaths to deaths. It's horrifying, either one. But it's just to point out that there have been cases, and Kim, maybe you can talk about that settled in court where death has been ruled as caused by the vaccine. Sure. And I just wanted to also go back to something Eileen said about the passiveness of the VAERS system and the underreporting. There was a study done that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services commissioned by 
the Harvard Pilgrim group, and they found that approximately 1% of injuries were reported to VAERS, that the underreporting is really severe. And when they went back to CDC to try to get more information and to flesh this out further, CDC stopped returning their phone calls. So they were essentially shut down, but they did some good study and some good data. And this is, again, very mainstream sources saying, you know, these injuries, these 65,000, 66,000 HPV injuries reported to VAERS are literally a tiny fraction of the potential injuries that are out there. And there have been cases that have been settled or have been compensated in the vaccine injury compensation program for very serious injuries and for death. And in the United States, many people don't know that you cannot sue the vaccine manufacturer in a regular court of law if you've been injured by a vaccine. If I've been injured in my car, I'm in an accident, my seatbelt fails, I can sue the manufacturer of my car and the, you know, probably the manufacturer of the seatbelt and all kinds of other things. If I have a vaccine injury, I can't sue the manufacturer, I can't sue Merck, I can't sue Glaxo. What I can do is bring a claim in what's called the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which has been around since 1986, and it was put in place at a time when there were significant legal claims against vaccine manufacturers for injuries surrounding primarily the diphtheria tetanus pertussis shot that was made with whole cell pertussis. And there were threats by the vaccine manufacturers that they couldn't survive this, they would stop manufacturing vaccines. And so the Compensation Act was put into place, and it shields the manufacturers from liability. So when you, as a person or as the family member of a person who's been injured, makes a claim, you're not making that claim against the manufacturer. You are making the claim against the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That is the respondent in the program. It's a program where you don't get any discovery let alone any discovery from the manufacturer who would be a third party at that point. It was meant to be a non-confrontational means of resolving disputes, and it really has turned into a much more confrontational program. It is not a quick resolution. It can take many years. We tell the story of Christina Tarsell and her mother, Emily, in the book. Emily had taken Christina, who was a brilliant scholar, an incredibly talented artist. We have some beautiful photos in the book of artwork that she had done. And a competitive tennis player. She was a student at Bard University here in New York State. The family, you know, she had taken her to get the vaccine, talked to the gynecologist about it. Emily's own sister had passed away from uterine cancer and so was concerned about reproductive cancers. Got the vaccine. And after, I believe, the third dose Emily got a knock that no parent wants on her door in the middle of the night a couple of weeks after Chris had gotten her shot and had gone back to school. It was police officers telling her that Chris had been found in her bed and had passed away. And it turned out that she had passed away from a cardiac issue. And Emily filed in the compensation program. She was denied initially. She took that case up on appeal to the Federal Court of Claims, which overturned the denial. It went back to the compensation program for reconsideration under the standards that the Court of Claims set forth as the appropriate standards, and she was compensated. But in the compensation program, it's cold comfort for a family who's lost a child because life is valued at $250,000 in that program. That's the cap. 
on what a parent can receive. A person who is still living and severely injured, the awards can be tens of millions of dollars depending on the injuries and the annuities that are put in place to cover that person's care. And we see there was just a recent decision that came down from a young woman who, again, had been a vibrant, healthy, active young woman, received one injection of the vaccine and developed a multiple sclerosis like autoimmune demyelinating disorder and is in a wheelchair and will require lifelong care. So there are really serious injuries that are being compensated, are being settled, and tragically, there are deaths. Chris Tarsell's is not the only case. Mm. Yes, it is quite sad and injuries are bad enough, but is there more to say about how fertility is affected? I know they didn't test fertility in humans, only in rats with the initial clinical <laughs> trials. But do we have any better data now or better idea of how fertility is affected by this vaccine? Well, I'll start with that, Greg. It's a delicate issue because this vaccine is aimed at a virus of the cervix and to suggest that this would cause a fertility issue is frightening and nobody would believe it, right? But we did see from those new medical conditions that we spoke of earlier that 10 or 12% of both sides, both the vaccine and the placebo arm, reported new reproductive disorders. So reproductive disorder ranging in severity. And these were healthy girls before. So when you look at the clinical trials, the data for, let's say, pregnancy, that would be where you would see an effect on fertility. And it was reported by Merck that 27% of women who became pregnant after receiving the vaccine miscarried. Now that was passed off by Merck to the FDA as, oh, it's the same as background rates. And alarm bells should have been going off at the FDA because these were women, like we said before, were young women, the average age was 20. And if they inadvertently got pregnant after the vaccine, a normal miscarriage rate in that age group is 10 to 15%. And some studies show it even lower. We found a study from around that time published in 1998 from a Danish registry in Europe that put the rate at 8 to 9%. But in the US, it's around 10%. So it's pretty consistent. And a lot of the trial participants were from the US and Europe. So if, and again, pushing it on to Gardasil 9, a similar rate of miscarriage was found in the Gardasil 9 trials, which is what girls receive and boys receive right now. And it was even higher in the 24-year-old to 26-year-old age bracket. It was 40%. Now, in the real world, you don't see miscarriage rates of 40% until you're over 40. And this is known. This is not some conspiracy. So to think that there's an effect on fertility, it is shocking. But we did also look at a study from Stanford, and I'll come to the CDC perspective in a second. There was a study in Stanford, a Stanford clinic that looked at premature ovarian failure in teens. It was before 2006, unheard of. They decided to look at their clinic and a case series study of their cases in the clinic because they had seen cases come in and they were shocked. These doctors were kind of shocked. And they looked at all cases of primary ovarian failure since 1998. And they found 15 cases and 14 were since 2006, which was the year the vaccine was approved. Of course, they did not associate these cases with the vaccine, nor did they study it. But they did say 
that it could be an environmental factor. These were idiopathic cases. In other words, there's no known cause. There are other cases where a cause is known, but these were cases of idiopathic primary variant failure. The CDC decided to do their own study a few months ago, uh, and this will be something that doctors may mention in response to that. But they looked at cases since 2006 and didn't go back prior to when the vaccine was on the market. So this is a whitewash of a study, basically just to calm everyone down, I think. And they did find 46 cases and maintained that that was not statistically significant. And you have to ask, statistically significant to whom? To those 46 children who developed idiopathic cases of primary ovarian failure following a vaccine, but they compared children who got Gardasil to children who got other aluminum-containing vaccines at the same age, this 12-year-old age. So this is really preposterous, the way that they churn out studies in response to scandals, as if to head off the rumor at the pass. This is what is continually done in order to put these rumors to bed. And if anyone with any semblance of common sense read that study, they would say, but why did you not go back to 1996, for example, and see what primary ovarian failure rates were like back then, just 10 years before the vaccine? And that's not done. And it's pretty basic And so, you know, all we have to go by is look at the book and look at the chapter that we talk about on fertility. There are two ingredients in the vaccine that, you know, are associated with infertility in rats. And we tend to laugh when we say, wow, they only studied the vaccine on rats. They couldn't study it on women, of course, because it would be unethical. But they did invariably, by default, have pregnant women in the studies and they had to report on those findings. And, you know, finally, the FDA accepted that 30% miscarriage rate in women, young women, is acceptable. So we have to ask the question, the evidence is stacking up, and you have worldwide teen pregnancy rates down by 50% since 2006, 2008, and nobody's asking what environmental factors are at play. We don't think the vaccine is the only thing, but it could be. You know, there's many other factors, social media, attitudes, or, you know, increased access to abortion medication, but until somebody looks critically and medically at these children for an environmental factor that's a drug or this vaccine, I don't think we can rule it out. And I, Greg, I will have to leave the interview right now, but I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Uh Kim Mac Rosenberg. (laughs) And I, I thank you very much. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Eileen, thanks for being here and for (laughs) all the great information and the great book. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, Eileen. Just to build on what she said a little bit about these issues of premature ovarian failure and fertility issues, it was also very concerning to us. And again, we're not doctors and scientists. We're coming at it from sort of an investigative journalist perspective. But by choosing the target market of 11 to 12-year-olds, let's say 9 to 14, 15-year-olds, you're choosing children who are either prepubescent or just entering puberty, and their bodies are going through enormous hormonal changes, very different than what's happening to a 16 to 26-year-old woman. And that needs to be considered and accounted for. And it was tested, again, on very few children in that age range. And also, at that age, you know, young women, frankly, may not have started menstruating yet, or their periods may not be very regular. So changes and irregularities in that regard may not be apparent to anyone at that time if a girl hasn't started menstruating yet or 
it's several years. And then, as Eileen said, many factors could be at play, but to even consider or take into account the possible role of the vaccine if it's not realized till many years later that this young woman has perhaps primary ovarian failure or some other fertility-related issues or menstrual issues, time goes by and you may not even recall that she got that vaccine or that maybe you noticed things or didn't notice things because she was so young when she got it that could have an impact down the road. And again, that's just a question that we raise because we do think it's important to look at that and to remember that you know young children are very different than older teens and young adults. And we know that, for example, just looking, and Eileen touched on this, at the immune response of the young children compared to the 16 to 23-year-olds in that bridging study she talked about, the immune responses of the younger children, the 9 to 15-year-olds, were substantially higher, both in that half dose of aluminum group and the full dose of aluminum group compared to 16 to 23-year-olds. And that's taken as a good thing that these children are having a more robust immune response. But is it necessarily a good thing? Because with that robust immune response can come more negative reactions as well, because you're priming the immune system to fight something. Mm -hmm. Yes. And those are great points. And that's kind of what stuck out to me about giving it to younger girls is because if the name of the game is obscuring the dangers and the damage that were kind of picked up on in some of these clinical trials, instead of confessing and fessing up to those red flags, you just move the age back because obviously, as you said, the puberty process creates all kinds of changes in the body. So it creates a lot of cover to say, well, that could have been something else. That could have been a naturally occurring. We don't know how they were going to develop because you're injecting them before that happens. And that's, I mean, I don't know. We can't talk about motives, but it sounds like a dirty trick to me. I mean, especially when you add in the stuff we've already talked about. And I know we're getting down to it. The one last thing I wanted to broach here was I wanted to touch on this component of the book about Vioxx. I found this to be pretty interesting and telling, but why is Vioxx important to the Gardasil story? So Vioxx is important to the Gardasil story for a few reasons. One is that Merck was embroiled sort of in the Vioxx scandal at this time. And, you know, there's the colloquial sort of inside joke that HPV stands for help pay for Vioxx. But Merck had to pay substantial fines as a result of the Vioxx clinical trial fraud. The data showed that Vioxx was causing very serious health issues, and that data was manipulated and not disclosed in the manner that it should have been. And as a result, that drug was approved, it went to market, and hundreds of thousands of people suffered very, very serious injuries. So that was an expensive proposition for Merck. So it was important that Merck had something on the burner that it could bring out. And HPV infections are something that most people get. Most people never know they have them because they tend to be completely asymptomatic. Hmm. And as we said earlier, over 90% of them resolve on their own. But you've essentially got a market of almost all adults in America at that point and, and you know, <laughs> in other countries for this vaccine. And 
you know, in the developing world where cervical disease and cervical cancer death are very, very serious issues, a potential market there. As Eileen said, it really hasn't worked that way. The countries where the rates are the highest tend to not be the countries who have programs in place. So we could talk about that. And it's the countries where, you know, like the United States, where you're at a very low risk of developing cervical cancer, that you have higher uptake. And then in countries like Australia and the UK and Ireland, where there are school-based programs, uptake is even higher. Almost everyone gets them in some of those countries. In Ireland, following a whole series of injuries and publicity surrounding those, the, the vaccination rates actually dropped significantly. But in other countries, I think Eileen mentioned the UK, where you know uptake is in the 80 or 90 percent range. You know, you have a huge worldwide market for this vaccine because nearly everyone will be exposed to HPV in their lifetime. Oh, man. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's overwhelming, you know, it's really, really sad. And I do appreciate you spending the two hours with me. Big thanks to Eileen as well for being here as long as she could. It's very sad and frustrating this sort of stuff happens, but you ladies really are beacons of light in the darkness, and I really love that you're out there fighting back. Again, the book is amazing. The HPV vaccine on trial, seeking justice for a generation betrayed. Is there anything else we should maybe tell people about staying informed or following any other work you're going to be putting out? Well, we're still trying to get the word out about this one. Yeah, <laughs> so one thing at a time. One thing at a time. So we encourage people to not only get the book and read it for themselves, but to buy a copy for their doctor, because we just know anecdotally in talking to physicians that a lot of them aren't aware of the flaws, for example, in the clinical trial process with this vaccine in particular. You know, we know that sometimes you say to a doctor, well, you know, there was no placebo. <laughs> there was no saline placebo. And they say, well, of course there was. There are always saline placebos in the clinical trials. You say, well, no, actually, there weren't. And I can show you the documents from the government and from Merck that show that. That's often an opportunity I have found and I know others have found to really start a conversation. Because something like that is often shocking for doctors. And they'll say, okay, what else went on in the clinical trial? Tell me more. Right. It opens the door. And because we relied so much on the documents from the FDA and from the EMA and the Merck information that's incorporated into the clinical reviews in the FDA and the memos that Merck submitted to FDA and their testimony to FDA, and the underlying science about HPV infections and cervical disease and other things from, you know, doctors at the National Cancer Institute and similar scientists, you know, this very mainstream, very credible research that shows the flaws in this whole process. And then, you know, the stories that are out there that show what's happened since the vaccine has gone to market and since the marketing campaigns and the school-based campaigns that are exposing so many kids to these vaccines and then seeing the children and young adults who have been injured following vaccination 
you know, the book is sort of an emotional roller coaster to me, even in writing it and rereading it at various times. Yeah. You know, you go from the hard science and these deep dive into aluminum and the toll like receptor agonists and clinical trial data to the real world stories of what's happening around the world. In Colombia and Carmen de Bolivar, where hundreds of girls in one town were injured by the Gardasil vaccine, to India, where those families were not able to give true informed consent and girls died in these demonstration projects, to families here around the United States and elsewhere who have been injured. It brings all that science sort of home in a very real world way that I think is compelling for readers. And, you know, we know that. One of the challenges here with connecting injury to the vaccine where it's appropriate to do so is that a lot of doctors don't know how to recognize vaccine injury. So we also point doctors towards some literature here. So there's literature here that doctors can look to. Again, not a doctor, but we have spoken to doctors and have found published peer-reviewed literature that talks about what these vaccine injuries look like and the mechanisms of the injuries. And we hope that that will be helpful for doctors who are treating girls and boys who are coming to them with a myriad of unusual symptoms in many cases, trying to connect the dots and figuring out what happened to this child. And then, you know, where do you go from there and how do you treat them? And how can you hopefully help to get some improvements in their quality of health and quality of life going forward? Well, I do think it's an amazing book. And as a quintessential layman, I can't think of a way that it could be laid out any better. It leads even the most skeptical to a pretty ironclad case that something is not right. So Kim and company, brave and noble stuff you're doing. Thanks again. Keep it up and uh, continue to do great work. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you for having us on. <laughs> you got it. All right, all right. Higher side chatters. I hope everybody had a good holiday. I hope everybody enjoyed Bird Box, and I hope you liked today's show. It checks a lot of boxes for me. Number one, I just think it's nice to have a female-centric medical conspiracy episode right after a circumcision episode for the guys. Just a nice equilibrium for the month. It's also always a treat to have two guests. It adds a layer of complexity and audio quality and editing and all that, but it is a little something extra that is nice to see on THC once in a while, so that's fun. And also the caliber of guests. They definitely have done their research and produced a real ironclad case against this particular vaccine. You know, not all vaccines, but definitely this one. And that's kind of what I was trying to say in the beginning about the way this kind of information is sometimes presented in that over-the-top New World Order kind of way. And I'm not even trying to suggest that they don't know what they're doing or that's not actually the case, but it's about tonality and convincing new people. Because lately I am of the mindset of trying to increase our general numbers and break through the false sense of security people get in organizations like the CDC or the FDA. And I've tried to structure this show the same sort of way, that someone who is maybe very pro-vaccine could listen to it, and we can at least get through to them about this one case. And if that's true, I think you have to conclude that the whole thing is suspect. I also tried to ask some pretty deep questions related to those wider implications as well, I think it was in the Plus show when it was just me and Kim, but I set it up as saying, 
These people are not new to statistics and gathering data. These are the world's elite level scientists and medical experts. And knowing that, and having gone over the data manipulation and obscurification and fraud that exists within these trials, if we had a thought exercise here where a nefarious few wanted to poison, kill, sterilize, etc., an entire population or generation, yet the world is a big place and we have safety testing in place and we have this long process with certain requirements to get something to market, hoops that must be gone through before you can gain access to millions of people, if a nefarious few knew they would have to navigate that terrain skillfully when their intention was to hurt us, how might you suspect it would look different from what we actually see in this data? To me, that was my best question today. And again, another parallel to Brendan Murata's circumcision show In both cases, these are guests that want to stick to the facts and would rather not get into capstone cabal secret agenda speculation territory, and I absolutely get that, and I think it's what they should do. I think it's better if my role as a host is just to tiptoe into those waters, because I do like these episodes to constantly reinforce our worldview in an intellectual way, and I like to use these things to constantly rebuild and strengthen our overarching conspiratorial perspective that if we have all these agencies signing off on this dangerous HPV vaccine, what does that say about their integrity overall? And what does that say about their intentions? Is it consistent with some of the wildest claims about them? And if we just made the case that these agencies and companies can't be trusted at all across all the products that they make and all the recommendations that they make and the testing that they do, if this is all untrustworthy, which I think is the case, then we're in deep conspiracy land because you also have to look at why they would have these special isolated courts set up, why Eileen and Kim are able to figure all this out and identify these issues. And our larger system just doesn't, just can't. I don't know. Again, how is what is happening in this case functionally different than an attack on the people which needs to be thinly veiled as safe? Another way of getting at this, again, I think a question in the plus show, sorry, but I said something to the effect of, I get that there's a lot of money involved, and we can say that it's greed and general capitalist corruption. Okay. But that would be true even if they were injecting people with something benign or mundane, like saline solution and just calling it a vaccine. Anything ineffective could be a money-making machine, but this isn't just ineffective. It's harmful and deadly. It seems to be crushing fertility rates. So I look at the end results and then I speculate about motive because I think these people are getting exactly what they want. Like we said, world's best scientific minds and medical experts. They've seen the same clinical trials. They carried them out and they twisted it to hide what they knew was going to happen when they mainstreamed this. And isn't it funny that we don't have any of these stories where they say breaking news We just found out the HPV vaccine or the flu shot is not as effective as we thought it was, but you will experience an overall strengthening of your general immune system. You should see a 20% reduction in stress and you'd have a slight lift in cognitive fog, etc. You know what I'm saying? It's never 
good side effects ever. If Merck tried to create a vaccine and because of the complexity of these things, it just wasn't the super defense we thought it was, but it still had some benefits, that would be one thing. But where is that example? It's like I've said about fluoride for a long time. Okay, so you don't want to believe that it's poison. That's fine. Well, why just something to strengthen teeth? Why not just put vitamins and minerals in the water supply? Something completely non-controversial and universally good for the body. Why not do that? And I'm trying to stay a bit measured here. I don't want to go full Alex Jones. I want to maintain the overall tone of the guests and maybe just kick it up a notch or two without tipping over the whole boat. But seriously, these are the ways to get the mental wheels turning for people who still aren't there yet. I'm not trying to paint this as conspiracy because it's fun and provocative and I just want everyone to think like me. I'm saying as objectively as I can at this point, which is a struggle, I don't know how to see it any other way. So there it is. All good stuff. That's the show. I work hard to try and bring you the best. If you enjoy it, please sign up for THC Plus and get yourself two uninterrupted hours of the show. In this one, the Plus show covered some of the latest research on aluminum and other adjuvants used in vaccines, countries who are resisting and rejecting the HPV vaccine and their individual stories, other legal and financial elements that demonstrate tilted scales and conflicts of interest, and another interesting story of Dr. Lee and his findings on the live HPV virus in the vaccine, despite what was being said about it. And we talked about GMO DNA in the vaccines and stuff like that. So more than enough to make it worth it by my standard, but we're all different. Major thanks to my guests, Kim and Eileen. Find them on social media and tell them thanks. One more show for the year, and then in 2019, I'm thinking of sticking with my plan to change the theme song yearly. I think we're going to reinvent the original THC intro and use that for a while. Not sure which one you guys really like better, my old original radio voiceover or this latest song that I guess we should call Where Would We Be, which we've had two versions of now. Obviously, this is a very important decision that I'm going to mull over for the next five days, but I have options. So maybe let me know which one you'd rather have bring you into the higher side before a show. Because I'm kind of curious, but either way, I do like changing it up. And that said, I'm going to get out of here. Seems like we made a pretty complete case today, so I did my part. Your move, medical miscreants, scientists, sleazeballs, and harm-doing doctors. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a whole got a neat elevator going under. And now you'll find me in the bunker.
Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker, bunker. 